Listening to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. The latest COVID case counts released today show we are still trending upwards with over 900 new cases diagnosed daily and hospitalizations hitting 130. That's according to State Health Director Libby Char, who we talked to just within the hour this morning. The case counts are going up, and so we need to be mindful of that. There is no need to panic, but we need to really be mindful of it, and we need to make smart decisions. People know how to deal with COVID at this point. Stay home if you're sick. That's one of the huge lessons that keeps popping up over and over. People show up at work. They thought, oh, just allergies, or I wasn't feeling that bad, so I decided to come to work. Now you just infected everybody else in the office. So stay home when you're sick, even if it's mild. Wear your mask indoors. We don't have a state requirement for it, but that doesn't mean it's not a good idea. Wear your mask indoors and when you're around a lot of people, especially if you're somewhere that's crowded. Um, even if it's outdoors, if it's really crowded, wear your mask. That's going to protect you. And then avoid large gatherings. I think at this point we're back to having to do that again. You know, for a while it was looking better and it was okay. I think with the numbers that we're seeing now, we know that COVID is just widespread in the community. So as of today, we have 925 new cases being diagnosed in the community every single day. And that's just off of the PCR test. So we know that the true number, uh, depending on you know who you're reading in the literature, it's five times higher than that, up to maybe 10 times higher than that. So if we figure five times that, you know we're, we're approaching 5,000 cases a day, 4,000 cases a day, and I think that's probably realistic. So it's out there. It's everywhere in the community. Avoid large gatherings. You know, consider getting takeout at restaurants again until the numbers come back down. Get vaccinated. That's the one thing that we know absolutely works well. Get vaccinated and get boosted. It will keep you out of the hospital. It will keep you, hopefully, from getting very severely ill. Um, so these are, this is nothing new. This is all stuff that we know already. But I think the point is it's, it's out there. It's in the community. Don't panic. We know what to do, but when you're going through your day-to-day activities, you know, think about it and make some thoughtful decisions. So if it means not going to a graduation party, there are weddings that have been resumed. There are just so many activities at this time of the year. You know, it's graduation season, and that's such a, a huge deal for so many people, and it's such a special thing. But if you're sick... Really, do you want to be the guy that infected everybody at the graduation party and got, you know, your family members and your friends sick? It's it's just not a good idea. Um, if you're holding a graduation party, can you do it outdoors? You know, and, and could you have a couple of smaller parties instead of having one really large party, and, and do it in the backyard or do it at the beach park or something else? Um, I've been at Alamona Park recently, and there's a whole bunch of parties outdoors. Sure looks like they're having a great time, but they're doing it reasonably and safely outdoors, good ventilation, you know, people are able to spread out. That's the kind of thing, that's a much better decision than trying to cram a bunch of people indoors in a restaurant or something. What can you tell us about the hospitalizations at this point? So we're watching the hospital numbers and we're seeing them also go up. It's a lagging indicator, so the cases have been going up. I think this is about the eighth straight week now. And hospital numbers have started trending up in the past several weeks. So we're up to about 130 patients in the hospital. It's not mirroring the rate of rise that we are seeing cases, and that's a good thing. Um, and I think that's a tribute to our community being pretty well vaccinated for the most part, and then a lot of people also got sick on the last couple of surges that we had. But I would caution people in just looking at that hospital number because really the number that we should be watching, it's not even a number, it's what is our capacity to actually care for people in the hospital. So if you have a whole bunch of physicians and nurses and providers and technicians and everybody else in your hospital staff and they're out sick, that limits the hospital's ability to care for patients. 
So it's not just the number of COVID patients, it's how many of the hospital staff are out sick. What is our ability to care for people who are in the hospital? I believe it was Hilton Rathel who said that, you know, he would be concerned as the cases were starting to hit 90. You know, now we've exceeded that. I don't know what you can tell us as far as the you know, the mortality cases, were they vaccinated? Do they have underlying diseases? Because nationally, you know, they were saying that's really what it is, is the, the folks that are more susceptible are succumbing to this. Yeah, so I think with the with the advent of the vaccines, and now we have a bunch of um, COVID medications, it's really helping to keep people from becoming severely ill and ending up in the hospital and dying. That being said, we still do have many vulnerable people in our community. And just because you get vaccinated doesn't mean that you can, you know, or that you should go out and do whatever you want. You still need to make thoughtful decisions. I think it's tragic when anybody dies from something that could have been preventable. And so again, it gets back to us as a community you know, we're concerned at the hospital numbers, and we know that they will continue to go up even after the number of um, cases peaks because it's a lagging indicator. So it'll it'll lag that, and it'll go up a little bit more before it comes back down. Um, we're really keeping an eye on that, and we're also mindful of how many of our healthcare workers are out sick. That's part of our community, right? So when, when COVID goes up in the community, hospital employees are also getting sick. Uh, people that work in clinics and in nursing homes, they're also getting sick. And so we really need to keep an eye on what is our capacity to care for people, not just COVID patients, but all the people that need health care. Why can't we have better numbers on the cluster reports? Because, I mean, it's been about two weeks since we had the last one, and, and you identified proms at the time. But, you know, what can you tell us? I mean, are there clusters in the hospitals that we should know about? Are there clusters in, in, in restaurants? The point of the cluster reports when they first started, it was to, to try and help educate people as to where we were seeing large pockets of disease pop up, what kind of activities associated with what kind of places, venues, um, things like that. At this point, it is so widely spread in the community that, you know, if I said, oh, there was a, you know, somebody had a party and, and a bunch of people got sick after it, it doesn't, I mean, that's all stuff that we know already. And so it's it's not particularly um, as useful in terms of us shaping our behavior. We know where it's coming from. You know, large gatherings indoors, not wearing your mask, being around a lot of people who are not vaccinated, being around a lot of people that are immune compromised. You're going to see cases as a result of those kind of gatherings. So we know where it's coming from. Um, and to that end, the, the cluster reports take a lot of time and energy. And so we felt that that energy would better be would be better used in, in different ways rather than continuing to generate cluster reports when at this point it is so widespread. You, know, you get 900 new cases a day, it's everywhere. Not a matter of like, oh, there was a cluster in a certain place and so you should avoid that activity. We know what to do at this point. Well, we're seeing everything resume. We're seeing, you know, concerts, fundraising dinners. I went to one recently and then I got a note saying, oh, someone tested positive, not at your table, but uh, just FYI. And so I'm starting to kind of walk back on some of the events that I have booked thinking, mm, maybe not. And that's exactly, I mean, that's the kind of thoughtful decisions that I wish everybody would make. You know, you have to determine the risk to you and to your family. Um, if you get sick, what, what does that mean to your family members? Are you in proximity to a lot of kupuna or to young children? And so by looking at your own your own choices to say, hmm, should I really go to that dinner? You know, how important is it? Is it key that I be there or not? Where is it being held? Is it outdoors? Is it indoors? Are the tables spaced apart? And so I think things like that, we all want to get back out there. But, you know, is it a good idea to, to sit indoors like in a theater for a couple of hours? Are people wearing their masks or not? That all matters. And so I think those kind of thoughtful decisions are really going to help us as a community. People are so tired, they want to get back to things that they used to do and not have to worry about COVID anymore. But sorry, guys, it's still here. It's not quite done yet. So, you know, we need to we need to be aware of that and we need to act accordingly. That was State Health Director Dr. Libby Char talking to us this morning. 
The health department this week has reactivated its joint information center in an effort to keep communication lines open across government offices. Char stressed that should you test positive, to call your doctor right away to ask about treatments that are now available. Many should be started within the first five days of diagnosis to be the most effective. Again, Char is urging the public to avoid large gatherings, and she recommends maybe the return to takeout versus indoor dining. The discovery of new cases of bird flu in wild birds in Alaska prompted us to reach out to avian infectious disease specialist Terry Work. Uh, he's at the National Wildlife Health Center, Honolulu Field Station. He's a biologist with the USGS, uh, U.S. Geological Survey and was involved uh, in surveillance during the last outbreak of avian influenza back in 2006. You may not be aware of the huge effort that was underway for about four years. Work says they swabbed thousands of birds looking for any possible cases here in the islands back then, and they found none. The Fish and Wildlife Services across the country, the public is being asked to report any unusual bird die-offs or strange behavior in waterfowl like swimming in circles or jerky neck movements. Here's Work explaining why. It typically manifests as neurological signs or just death. Most often it's just unusual numbers of dead birds, but sometimes you'll see birds that have weird nervous system signs. So that's the swimming in circles or flying yeah, oddly? Yeah, yeah. But there's other things that cause that too. So I mean, if you see unusual behaviors in, in waterfowl, that would be something to be thinking about. Well, the latest is that Alaska has now, I believe it's four cases as of the you know, the latest check on the USDA website, and it's in Canadian geese uh, that they Mm -hmm. found it in Alaska. And I recall we did have some Canadian geese stop off at the Campbell Wildlife Refuge there on the North Shore here. Yes, we do occasionally, uh, but not in the numbers that they see, like in Alaska or the mainland. So they're, they're few and far between. We do see them, but not very often. So they just, what, get blown off course or you get a straggler every now and yeah, then? Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're, they're usually, they're called stragglers, basically. So, I mean, you'll see this, you'll see the odd, like the pintail, Canada geese, shovelers, things that kind of get blown off course and end up in Hawaii. But this is not one of their ma- major migratory routes. I mean, one of the things with, with diseases like avian influenza, it's, it's a numbers game, right? The more animals there are, the more likely you are to get an outbreak. And, and it's just we. We just don't have huge numbers of migratory waterfowls other than plovers coming through here. And we were on alert, and you know, were doing all kinds of surveillance, right? Correct. We were collaborating with the USDA, and it was a joint effort between Department of Interior and Department of Agriculture. And so we were trapping our wild birds and taking swabs from the birds and testing them for avian influenza. How do you swab and a bird? You grab them and you you stick a you stick a cotton swab up their butt. That's basically what you do. Okay. And, and then and then you take that and you put it in a vial and then you send it off to the lab and then they test it for avian influenza. It's a very it's a very effective method of testing birds. You can also swab their throats. And so we were doing both. We we're swabbing both the throat and and the, the cloaca, the anus, the butt. Well, and, but you got to catch that them because that's where the virus is shed. But, but you have to catch the birds first. You have to catch, that's exactly right. You have to catch the birds. We put nests out in wildlife refuges, and then you drive the birds into the nets, and then you, you capture them that way. Share with our listeners, you know, what turned up after you did this surveillance? Absolutely nothing. So we, we did surveillance in, in the main Hawaiian Islands. We surveyed in American Samoa, and we even surveyed in Palau. And we found no evidence of the virus circulating in any of those places. But with this one, I know we're told that they're seeing it now in geese and ducks, which uh, previously weren't affected by the last go-around with the avian flu. Well, that's not true. With the last go-around, we were doing surveillance. They have some huge mortalities of waterfowl in China because of this virus. So it, it did affect wild birds then, as it's affecting them now. But again, you got to remember, we're, we're lucky in that we have 2,500 miles of ocean separating us from the mainland, so the likelihood of it coming out here is relatively remote. 
okay, just because they just have so so much ground to cover, and they might just get sick well, and not make it. Exactly, exactly. So you got to remember that the birds that make it out here are usually in pretty good shape. And if they're sick from even influenza, they're not going to be able to make that migration, you know, two- to three-day migration that it takes to come from Alaska all the way to Hawaii. So, again, you know, we have this big moat around us, <laughs> which helps us out in these diseases. And so what about the birds that can carry the virus but have no symptoms, kind of like COVID? That's always a possibility. And so, again, there's not much we can do about that. You know, if a bird, if a bird migrates up to Hawaii and then starts shedding the virus. But again, remember, it's all a numbers game, right? When these viruses get transmitted, if it's one bird that's shedding a virus, it's a lot different than the whole flock of birds coming in and shedding the virus. So... Again, the likelihood is really low, but, you know, never say never. I'm, I'm, I'm never going to say it's, it's zero because it's, it's never zero in biology. It's always remote. And they are dealing with uh, poultry, you yep. know, and having to put down a lot of chickens. But what about like feral chickens? We have so many feral chickens here. Would they get, get affected, do you think? The, the issue with chickens on the mainland is it's in poultry houses. And in poultry houses, you have a lot of chickens in a very small, concentrated space. So it's just like a room full of COVID people, or room, room full of people, and somebody with COVID gets in the room and spreads it really rapidly. You have all these people, you can get rapid spread. And that's the same thing with these farm chickens. I think with wild chickens, again, the likelihood is lower because there's a lot more space. It's like social distancing for chickens. There's a lot more space between the chickens and I think a major outbreak in wild chickens would be less likely than what you see in these poultry houses where chickens are much more concentrated. And our plovers, when do they come back? Uh, they come back, uh, well, they, they, they come back in, in, in the summer when, when the, well, the chicks come back in the summer when it starts migrating from Alaska in the summer. And, and the adults are coming back in the winter. So they leave, they leave the, 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 the nesting grounds and start migrating, and then the chicks follow later on. So they're kind of throughout the year. So then as far as surveillance, so, you know, we just are watching these cases pop up, and then you folks will just wait for the word to see if we need to start doing more surveillance in, uh, intensely again? Yeah, so, you know, based on our past experience, that surveillance effort that we did was a huge effort, and it yielded very little information. And when you look at when the H5N1s, they're back, you know, back in the early 2000s or mid-2000s, most of the detections were happening through mortality events rather than people actually going out and swabbing live birds. So um, we have a good network of responders in, in the main Hawaiian Islands, uh, people in refuges, DLNR, who have their antennas out for unusual mortality events in native wildlife and their waterfowl. And they would contact us. And at that point, we'd follow up and, and start doing investigations to figure out what the, you know, what killed the animals. And as part of that process, we'd be able to detect avian influenza. We would definitely be called to action if we detected a case here, you know, but that would be through these mortality investigations that we do on a routine basis. Every week we get calls of, you know, bird dying here, a bird dying there. And, and we follow up on that, and we do necropsies, and we do analyses, and part of we would be able to detect avian influenza. Influenza usually affects waterfowl most severely. So that, you know, so the big concern here would be things like our native Hawaiian ducks and our native coots uh, and our native gallinules. Those would be the birds I'd be most worried about if avian influenza got to Hawaii. So that's why we don't want it to get here, and we need to be vigilant. To, to, you know, to be aware of it, because we have a lot of endangered waterfowl here that we can't afford to lose. That was wildlife disease specialist Theri Work talking about the last outbreak of the avian flu. Biologists are closely monitoring the spread of the highly pathogenic avian influenza. So far, it has been found in 35 states.
Support for HPR comes from Evergreen by Deborah. At evergreenbydebra.com, learn more about porcelain tile by Royal Mosa, made using recycled water and hydroelectric power to create floor and wall tiles inspired by trends in design and architecture. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Dean Slider, author of The Dharma Bum's Guide to Western Literature. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about finding nirvana in classic literature. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art with a mission to create relevant and transformative experiences through art with collections of Asian, European, and American works, including arts of Hawaii and textiles. HonoluluMuseum.org. Well, the short list of candidates for public school superintendent is down to three. They will appear before the school board on Thursday. That's the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Cassie Ordonio is on the line today. Good morning, Cassie. Good morning, Catherine. Thanks for having me. Yes. Now, you know, we've all been waiting, uh, you know, to see who's still in the running. And uh, uh, tell us about these candidates. It's been a year, what, a nearly year-long search. You know, you got um, two candidates that are from the main, uh, no, sorry, um, you got two candidates that are from here and, you know, have a background in teaching. You have one that's from uh, the mainland, but also has a background in teaching, but is more limited to higher education, and both are vying to, um, you know, lead, um, you know, this uh, Hawaii public school system. Yes, and w- one of the three happens to be the interim superintendent, Keith Hayashi. Yeah, um, and he's been basically taking the lead since um, August 1st. Um, you know, there's been kind of like mixed emotions about um, Hayashi. You know, some have um, praised him for having his focus on reopening the schools. Um, but then there's also um, some who said, um, you know, he lacked communication, while others um, said that he's improved his communication among, you know, some of the uh, school principals, for example. Um, but I know recently he's been facing some backlash from, from some of the, you know, the parents who are um, opposed to, um, you know, masking their kids in indoors in their schools. Right. And he comes from Waipahu uh, High School and is doing a, a good work there. Uh, there's also Daryl Galera. Yeah, and Daryl um, also was a former BOE member. Um, he also ran back in 2017, but, um, you know, from previous coverages from um, my colleague that he withdrew amid, you know, concerns about him having maybe an edge over the other candidates before. But now he took a turn and, you know, wants to try again. Yeah, um, and, uh, you know, he is a, a, a broad uh, base of support um, for his years in the DOE. And then the third candidate is, as you mentioned, the one from uh, California, right? Yeah, she is from California, but her um, family um, basically established their roots here in 1995. Her mom was a special education teacher at Kalihi Elementary School, and her um, father was a minister, and they're both um, rooted in Kalihi. Um, so she kind of developed this um, connection there, too. And she de- she did acknowledge that she's not from Hawaii, but she said she's willing to learn. Um, and she also, um, one of the notable things that, you know, she's told me, um, given the fact that, you know, there are some concerns about her facing um, these challenges and adapting to um, Hawaii's culture is that she's not like the last superintendent. She um, said that she's willing to listen and, you know, work with state lawmakers and be out there. But, you know, we'll see what happens on Thursday. Right. And so Caprice Young, who we're talking about, will join Daryl Galera and Keith Hayashi before the school board. And and they're going to be quizzed on the spot there. And it's going to be a public meeting. So everybody's going to be able to kind of watch this and uh, decide for themselves. And this is the first time that the public actually gets to see this, whether, you know, they're interested or not. I know parents and teachers are going to be tuning in, but you actually get to see this um, interviewing process along with the voting when it's normally done behind closed doors um, in executive session. Um, that was due to a, a 2019 Supreme Court ruling. But um, the from what the Board of Education is going to be doing is they're going to be doing one round of interviews. Each board member will ask a question each, and they're going to be writing them mostly on com- competency. Um, and then also, um, uh, 
after that, there's, they should be voting or expecting to vote on Thursday. Yeah, I mean, the the school board meetings that I've covered and the times when the board has chosen, it has always been that process where they go behind closed doors and then they come out and they say, okay, we made a decision, and then they announce that decision. But, uh, yeah, this will be a, a, a kind of a fascinating process, like the making of, a, well, of sausage, right? <laughs> yeah, most definitely. It's going to be an interesting one, and um, I'm expecting a lot of, um, you know, a lot of uh, test or you know, whether it's formal testimony or not. But um, we're really going to get to see, you know, um, how the board is going to deliberate and also um, how the public is going to view the candidates in person. Yeah, it will be fascinating to watch. Uh, And hopefully uh, people will uh, tune in for that. But thank you so much, Cassie. Thanks for having me. That was reporter Cassie Ordonio with today's Reality Check. Uh, Check out her story on this issue. Visit civilbeat.org. You know, it was about four years ago that the Environmental Protection Agency announced that Kamehameha Schools had agreed to begin an audit of some 3,000 properties to determine which still had cesspools. Hawaii was the last state to ban the use of cesspools in new construction and now has the monumental task of getting property owners to convert the wastewater systems to something more environmentally friendly. We talked to Marissa Hardman, the Director of Asset Management for KS, about where they're at in the process. It's a survey and audit, which is just about complete, found about 100 large capacity cesspools that have to be closed. Here's Harmon. For Oahu, Maui, Moloka'i, and Kauai properties, we just submitted an inspection completion report and a planned schedule closure back in April. And for Hawaii Islands, we're on a little bit of an extended deadline due to the number of properties we have here. And next, we're working to submit inspection report to the EPA and plans for closure later this summer. The inspections are done, some LCCs identified by our auditor, and our tenants who have been notified of having a large capacity school are currently working through the process of converting them, which includes engaging an engineer to design and permit the new system, and then having the construction done to actually build the new system, most times a septic tank, and then close the old cesspool. There's a big question around why the responsibility falls on our tenants. And so our tenants are responsible for ensuring that their operations are in compliance with all regulations as defined in our land agreement with them. And our tenants installed the cesspools as part of their long-term ground leases, and they've solely benefited from the use of the cesspool in some cases for decades. So at the time of construction, we all know cesspools were acceptable, but now we know cesspools are not good for the INA. And it's fair that the tenants remedy the situation they created and bring themselves into compliance with the federal standards. So where are we at on the audit, if you can kind of give us a snapshot? So roughly we're at 100 total statewide that we've identified so far. Our auditor is still reviewing supplemental information for some of those inspections. So that's not a, a final number necessarily. So I just wanted to add that, uh, but for Hawaii Island, roughly 80% of the cesspool, large capacity cesspools we have found are located on Hawaii Island and 20% of our total number on Oahu. How does it work with the lessees that may have a lease coming up? Sure, we're working individually with each tenant based on their individual situation and the terms of their individual lease. So not all leases are the same, and we do have a landowner lessee confidentiality about the agreements that we have with each of them. But we have, we're doing direct contact individually with each tenant to work on their plan for closure. Are all your lessees having to come up with the money to switch this over to something else, whether it's a septic tank or a leach field, or you know, you folks front the money and then you work it out? On a general basis, the tenants are responsible for ensuring the compliance, which includes the responsibility for the cost of that compliance. But as I mentioned, you know, we are working with each tenant individually. We have come to agreements with a handful of the tenants that needed some extra support, but I'm not really um, 
privileged to be able to tell you what those details are in the support that we're providing to individual tenants. And if the tenants don't comply by the deadline, who's liable for the fines if the EPA opts to levy any fines? Well, if the tenants don't comply with the conversion, we do have to step in and complete the conversion of the cesspool for them. Um, but ultimately, because their lease agreement with Kamehameha does have them responsible for for those improvements and compliance, Kamehameha will likely continue to work with the tenant uh, to remedy the cost that Kamehameha would have to front for that closure in order to meet the EPA deadline. What's the most immediate deadline that you're up against? Uh, so for Oahu, we've met the deadlines uh, for the EPA to complete the inspections and turn in the inspection report, and then each tenant kind of gets on their own schedule in terms of closure and how they've been able to engage an engineer, engage a contractor, and then work towards that closure. So we stay in touch with each tenant as they go through the process, and we document where they are. There's no, uh, not necessarily a final closure deadline because the EPA does recognize uh, city and county government's responsibility in the permitting process as well as the state. And so as long as we're making progress on the conversion, we keep the EPA updated on a monthly basis as to where all the individual properties are at in their conversion process. Okay, and then you're just waiting for uh, some word back from the EPA on what you've turned in so far? Yes. I would just say, and then at the completion of the conversion, we also submit those documents to the EPA as well to notify them that the cesspool has been closed and a new wastewater system in place and, you know, kind of check the box and document that all is is good and well. Does it vary from place to place, whether the hookup is a leach field or a septic tank? It does vary place to place, given the topography, you know, floodplain issues, board of water supply restrictions. And so that's why we have engineers involved uh, from the lessee side so that they can specifically design the system based on the, the conditions of that property. And the cesspool issue came to our attention talking to leaseholders in the Camilo, Camilo Nui Valley in Hawaii High. It is the last agricultural area in East Honolulu, and uh, these leases are up in less than three years. Farmers and nursery owners are being told they must convert the cesspools, even though their future in the valley is uncertain. We talked to Representative Gene Ward about the problem. He introduced a resolution this past session urging KS to help support farmers, many who have been in the valley for generations. It was a shot across the bow to bring their attention at chaos that, hey, look, these guys are old. They've been there for uh, 30, 40, 50 years, some of them family generations, and they have only a couple of years left on the lease, and you're going to give them like a $30,000 penalty? Come on, give them a break. That was the point. And what did come out good in that is that they negotiated where they would chaos put in the tanks, and then there would be a amortization of, until the lease is over. A tank maybe last 30 years, it costs $30,000. So the farmers only have to put in 1000 every year uh, until their lease is up. So it would be two to $3,000. That was fair. But the curveball was, hey, by the way, we have a KS audit that they have to pay for. And the other is the KS, the penalty. The penalty is, in other words, there's an audit, then there's a penalty. And this only came to the farmer's understanding within the Christmas, New Year's holiday. So this is just like weeks old, and they had deadlines that were like, you got to do this by next week, get a contractor. Fortunately, the septic tank issue is over, but the penalty issue is not settled, nor is the the other way of contending with what's going to be the, the audit. My concern is, look, I've represented Hawaii Kai and the farmers. Kaiser puts farmers in to diversify the food supply, the food chain. And my fear is when these leases are up, if Kamehameha School puts in a subdivision, Hawaii Kai, as we know it, it will not exist. But they have been very close-mouthed, uh, cards close to the chest. Uh, they won't say what they're going to do, but if they're going to keep septic tanks in there, it suggests at least there'll be some farmers or somebody living on that land. Otherwise, why would they want to put septic tanks in? So my position is keep the, the farmers farmers uh, extend their leases. Uh, they have not budged on any of that, or let's say they haven't said anything yet uh, regarding the increase of the lease, whether it's five years or ten years. The farmers would like to see ten more years to give them a running chance to transition. And by the way, when they leave, everything that they've built there, unless they can take it apart, becomes uh, property of KS. Their barns, their houses, 
uh, their sheds, everything uh, that's left there is is no longer their own. That's the way the leasehold system works. And unfortunately, they've been categorized as large capacity cesspools. Uh, we've just passed a bill in the legislature that says, hey, cesspools, you 88,000, there's 88,000 cesspools out there. you got to be covered up by 2050, just like the EPA says. But the EPA has a different twist in that they've said if you're a farmer, you are automatically a large uh, capacity cesspool. I mean, these are just residential families with an occasional customer who comes in and buys something. They don't come there to go to the toilet or whatever. They don't have many employees other than their family. So they are kind of getting a bum, bum rap being a large capacity cesspool. My hope is the bill that we've passed in the state is going to allow them just to be a cesspool, and then they can close it off and do it as the, quote, the normal way of doing it, rather than like they're a big commercial, uh, you know, Knott's Berry farm where you get tourists and other kind of people trampling all over your uh, particular area. So you're just saying it's not one size fits all. Yeah, there are 11 farmers and I think maybe two or three licensees. Uh, You know, farmers are very independent people. It's the last of the kind of John Wayne Americans, if you will, Farmers, fishermen, and hunters. Uh, these farmers, they're, they're tough. They've worked hard all their lives. And because they're older, I mean, I, I would think KS would be a little bit more sympathetic to hitting them with such a, uh, a fine. And I'm hoping that they can work that out. I mean, KS is 16 to $20 billion, uh, biggest educational foundation in, in not only the U.S., but the world. I would think that they could find uh, some empathy, compassion, and something will work out. The point is, we are now on the point of going back and forth with this. As I know you've talked to KS, et cetera. These are things that uh, will come to light as things get close to uh, 2025 when their leases are literally uh, turning into pumpkins. And that was Representative Gene Ward talking about the uncertainty in the Kamilunui Valley, the last parcel in Hawaii Kai that is yet to be developed. KS says it has not yet made a decision about the future of the valley and so has not begun talks with its leaseholders. Again, those leases are up in less than three years. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Board of Water Supply, working to protect Oahu's water resources, offering tips to conserve water, such as taking shorter showers and fixing leaks. Updates on Red Hill at protectoahuwater.org. I'm Bert Lum. Today on Bite Marks Cafe, we catch up with Hatch, the aquaculture accelerator on Hawaii Island. We talk about their recent pitch contest and find out which companies participated and who rose to the surface. That's today at 6.30 p.m. on Bite Marks Cafe. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Hawaiian Airlines, connecting the local community with more than 100 flights a day across the islands. Schedules and reservations at hawaiianairlines.com. is the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. And hey, here's a bird you're likely already familiar with, the house sparrow. And for good reason. House sparrows are one of the most common wild birds in the world. We've got their song thanks to the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Here's University of Hawaii at Hilo professor Patrick Hart with your Manu Minute. House sparrows are one of those birds that always seems to be around, but they don't often get noticed. The males have rufous and black streaks on their backs, with a very noticeable black bib on a grayish breast. 
The females are mostly light brown. House sparrows are originally from Africa, and recent evidence has shown that they migrated with humans out of Africa, then into Europe and throughout the world. As their name suggests, they're mostly found around human habitations, where they love to build nests in the eaves or other covered areas of buildings. They've been considered both major pests due to their love of many of the grains that people grow, and also major consumers of many of the insect pests that farmers try to control. House sparrows seem to have been intentionally introduced to Hawaii in the mid-1800s and are now very common wherever people live throughout the islands. If you're having lunch in a city or park and a small brown bird comes begging for food, there's a good chance it's a house sparrow, especially if it has a song that sounds like this. A very recent study that came out in the journal PNAS estimates that there's about 50 billion birds in the world, and that the most abundant of all is our little friend the house sparrow, at an estimated population size of about 1.5 billion. Because of their habit of living around people, these birds pose little to no threat to any of our much more rare native bird species. For Hawaii Public Radio, this is Patrick Hart from the UH Hilo Department of Biology. Support for Manu Minute comes from Waiakea Water in Hilo, offering alkaline water featuring aluminum bottles and spouted boxes designed for filling personal water bottles. Subscriptions at waiakea.com. Thousand Hawaii youth experienced at least one major depressive episode in the past year. That's according to the Hawaii Department of Health. However, more than half, approximately 7,000, did not even receive treatment or even a mental health assessment. Experts say children and adolescents are more likely to see, uh, seek help when accessing mental health services is destigmatized. Jackie Jackson is a parent of two adult sons and a young daughter. Her firsthand experience dealing with her son's mental health challenges led her to becoming a certified parent support provider. She sat down with the conversations, Lillian Song, to share that story. I just remember it so clear. We got to a point where I was dropping him off at school, and he just told me I can't get out the car. And I, I was like, what's going on? I don't understand. And he just said, I can't get out the car. And I could see, you know, he was, you know, struggling within himself, trying to figure out, you know, how to muster through. But I guess he had been mustering through for so long that mm -hmm. he had finally reached that point where he couldn't do it any longer. Unfortunately, you know, so many of our children deal with anxiety. They deal with all these stressors, these mental health challenges, and they don't have systems in place to either feel like they can talk about them or discuss them openly. And so that's why it's been my goal to reach out to parents because I didn't know what to do at that time. You know, I was so thankful that we had private insurance because I was able to get him into, you know, a therapist pretty quickly. He was able to begin treatment fairly quickly. So. I took what I learned from watching him, and it's made me more aware. Your son was in the car. He was just like, I can't get out. This is too much. How long was his struggle? Well, it had started at the beginning of his junior year, but then summer came. He thought maybe he had conquered it. He didn't have the same fears and anxieties, but then senior year came. That's when it really blossomed and came to a head again. And mm -hmm. that's when I finally, you know, like I would notice some nervousness. I would notice some little um, tweaks that he have, you know, constantly washing his hands, little things like that. But as a parent, I didn't put it together. I didn't necessarily have a name for what he was going through because he was, you know, very active in theater and danced. You know, I'm thinking, well, how could you get on a stage and not have stage fright? But yet, at the same time, you're battling anxiety inwardly. You know, it took me a long time to even realize that I needed to ask the right questions to him, that mm -hmm. I needed to be that voice of support to him. At that time, he didn't need judgments. 
he didn't need. Well, how come, you know, how come you can do this, but you can't do that? That's the last thing he needed. He just needed me to be a parent and listen to him. And this is your experience speaking now. Yes. So what are some things to be mindful of? Is it a sudden change in behavior? It's not necessarily sudden. And children are as varying, you know, as their symptoms. The things that I've learned say to look out for long-lasting sadness or irritability, things that last more than two weeks, to make sure that if they're experiencing those extreme highs and lows that you're watching them. There could be excessive fear, excessive worry, anxiety, like my son experienced. There could be a social withdrawal. The things that they used to enjoy doing, they no longer enjoy doing. The people that they used to hang around, the places that they used to go. And there could also be dramatic changes in their eating or their sleeping habits. All of these things, you know, you want to watch out for. Mm. Because it can, you know, seemingly sneak up on you, but at the same time, in an instant, be right there in front of your face. Mm. You have done the research. You are aware of resources to help direct people to. And like you said, every child is different. The factors are different in every story, in every person's life. For you as a peer support parent, Mm -hmm. how do you connect with somebody who is new to this situation? As I've been working with Hawaii families as allies, It's not a very large organization. We've been around for over 35 years doing authentic peer parent support. I'm currently working on a juvenile justice grant through the Office of Youth Services. And what we do is do family support for parents of at-risk or adjudicated youth. Our organization also does consulting. They do trainings. There's a lot of things that they work on to help those who have that lived experience to develop that and formulate it together to be a peer support person. Mm. And this happened for your son as he was a junior going into his senior year. Mm -hmm. How long ago was that? He's now 26, about eight years ago. And I've been in Hawaii families, uh, coincidentally, a little over eight years. So I was very glad to get connected with this agency. I know the Child and Adolescent Mental Health Division of the Department of Health actually partners with about 12 different local agencies so that there's resources that families can contact. There's the National Association of Mental Health, as well as the National Federation of Families for Children's Mental Health. There's a plethora, there's Hawaii Cares, there's the Crisis Line. We definitely want people to text Aloha to 741-741 if their child is having an immediate mental health challenge. Don't wait. There's so many things going on right now, and we know that our children can sometimes be impulsive, so we wanna make sure that we have those systems in place. And so I urge parents, always be that listening ear for your child. Not only listening, but also watching. Like I said, watch their mannerisms. Watch and see if the people that they're hanging around with has changed, if they've become more withdrawn, if they don't take pleasure in the things that they used to take pleasure in, if they're, especially if they're giving possessions away. That's often a, a, you know, a major red flag that they're thinking of doing something severe to themselves. Mm-hmm. And self-injury, we know that it costs the lives of hundreds of youth every year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Right now we're in the middle of National Children's Mental Health Month. Mm-hmm. And the Hawaii Department of Health and the Children's Mental Health Acceptance Planning Group is really encouraging us to foster acceptance and to support access to mental health services for keiki. And so we're moving from awareness to acceptance now. Well, I equate it to living in Hawaii. You can be aware you live on an island in the middle of the ocean. That's awareness. But acceptance is when you realize, hey, I live on this island in the middle of the ocean. My resources are limited. So that means I'm going to take care of what's here. I'm going to make sure there's clean water to drink. I'm going to make sure that it's sustainable. I'm going to make sure that the keiki are protected. And that same train of thought went into the movement from awareness to acceptance this year. Mm. Because we need to accept that one in five youth experiences a mental health challenge. We need to accept that mental health challenges must be met with understanding and support. We must accept that bias and discrimination toward individuals who experience mental health challenges creates a barrier to them seeking treatment, and they have to be eliminated. We have to accept that our youth are facing serious challenges ahead that need to be addressed. And we have to accept that the future well-being of our country depends on how well we support and invest 
in this next generation. There are 13,000 youth in Hawaii who've experienced at least one major depressive episode in the past year, and that's up from 11,000 in 2020. It's estimated that 7,000 of those youth experiencing these episodes are not receiving services. Hawaii is 25th in the nation that as far as making sure that the youth have the services that they need. And it's estimated that 10 to 12% of the youth experiencing a severe emotional or behavioral difficulty that it's underreported, that it can be as high as 12%. That means like one in two children in your child's class could be dealing with a serious depressive episode and not even either have the resources in place or no one can even be aware of it. It's not just one person that's responsible for the health and well-being of our keiki. It's all of us from the school system on down mm. and making those connections at school, having the, the school counselors, the school-based behavioral health. They have systems in place so that children, if they're struggling, can reach out to people. But the thing is, because of the bias and discrimination, our children are afraid, you know, that they're going to be called names or we have to normalize these mental health challenges. It's only when we normalize them that then our, our children no longer, you know, have these fears. They don't have to worry about the stigma of being, you know, outed or being ousted by their friends, but they can be accepted. Mm. I know it was the greatest experience to me. I was in my dentist's office, and, you know, when you're in your dentist's office, you can't really talk a lot. But even he, you know, we were, just, we were just cleaning my teeth. And he was sharing with me about his son. And I thought, wow, look how far we've come. I know we still have so much further to go. But when mental health challenges become a part of everyday conversation, then we move forward as a society. That was Jackie Jackson, a certified parent support provider with Hawaii Families as Allies. She was talking with HPR's Lillian Song. We'll have links to free mental health resources on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today. And if you'd like to show your support for Children's Mental Health Acceptance Month, you're encouraged to wear green through the end of the month. Well, we have to go now, but up tomorrow, we learn more about a rescue conference. It's a gathering for our first responders. Got a story idea? Maybe about a rescue. Hey, call our talk back line, 808-792-8217. Hit us up on Facebook or email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You want to listen back to something you heard? Find our archive shows online. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.